And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the two and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, and second black horses, and third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of the heaven, after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariots with the black horses go toward the north country, the white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, Go patrol the earth. So they patrolled, patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. We close this series of visions kind of like we began it. The first vision were the colored horses. And what was their role in chapter 1? Patrol the earth. Reconnaissance. And what did they report? Peace and quiet. God wasn't happy. He wanted the oppressing nations shaken up. Now you've got these horses reappearing. They are the spirits of heaven. They stand before God. They're God's horses. And where is he sending them? Yes, uh, they represent the four winds or the four spirits. Wind and spirit, by the way, is the same word in both Hebrew and Greek. Um, but where does he send them in verse 6? The black ones and the white ones to the north country. The dappled ones to the south. North would be what nations in Zechariah's day? Assyrian Babylon and in Zechariah's day then... Persia. South would be what? Egypt. Egypt. I wonder why didn't send any horses to the east or the west? The east is the desert and the west is the Mediterranean. Yeah, exactly. Not even people in those places. And so these are God's horses that he sends more to the north than to the south. That's interesting. And uh, they patrol the earth. And then verse 8. See, those who are going to the land of the north now, there's a, the Nuremberg Standard puts the interpretive translation of the text and the literal translation of the margin. In this case, their interpretation is correct. The literal translation, they have caused my spirit to rest in the land of the north. Well, God, why was God's spirit troubled? Because it was peaceful and quiet among the enemies, and God wanted them punished. So, the interpretive translation, they have appeased my wrath in the land of the north. In other words, they execute God's judgments against these oppressing nations, and it calms God down. So he starts with the report, these nations are, are, are still going along peacefully and quietly, and God's upset about that and says he's not going to let that continue. And he finalizes the series of eight visions by sending those horses to the north, to cause his spirit to rest by executing his judgment against the oppressing nations. I think that's the point of that vision. Again, I would say, as most commentators don't, 
Please remember these horses when you study Revelation 6. It's amazing how many stories we come up with on those four horses that we would never come up with if we studied them in the light of Zechariah 1 and 6. But that's another story. Comments and questions about this last vision through verse 8. What about the red horses? I'm saying, but I don't know, that he's got some in reserve just in case. But I think that's, maybe there's a better explanation. Other thoughts or questions? to this first six chapters then. I don't know what else to do than just call it the conclusion. I don't know how much it concludes, but it's it's the last part of this vision section before we come to the question with the extended answer. So, and it's really cool. Some really good stuff here. 9 to 15. The word of the Lord also came to me saying, take an offering from the exiles from Hildai, Tobijah, and Jediah. And you go the same day to enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, where they have traveled from Babylon. Take silver and gold, make an ornate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit on the rule of his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Now the crown will become a reminder in the temple of the Lord to Helen, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the sons of Zephaniah. Those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. When the 50,000 came back to Jerusalem because of the decree of Cyrus, many other Jews remained in Persia. People like Nehemiah, who was the cupbearer eventually, and Esther, and so forth. But these exiles here have sent silver and gold to help the people of God back in Jerusalem. They still care about them. They're giving financial aid to support the temple restoration work, perhaps. And they are to take the silver and gold and make what? And put it where? Now, normally a crown crown is used by who? And who's Joshua? That's interesting, isn't it? He says in 12, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. He will be a priest on his throne, but the council of peace will be between the two offices. Now that just leads us to so many things, it's hard to know how to organize the thoughts. Uh, a lot of good stuff in this. Um, the branch. A messianic figure. I mentioned it before in Zechariah 3 when we found out Joshua was a symbol. Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 33, the branch represents Christ as sort of being the shoot that comes out of the stump 
of Israel and gives new life to his people. So the man whose name is Branch will build the temple. He will bear the honor, sit and rule on his throne. He'll be a priest on his throne. Joshua's a symbol of a priest on his throne. A throne symbolizes what? Who uses a throne? So what have you got merging together here? What two functions? Kingship and priesthood. In the law of Moses, did you have a merging of kingship and priesthood? Why not? Different tribes. Priests were from, and kings were from Judah, particularly in that lineage in Judah. Um, so you did not have, in the Old Testament law, a merging of priest and king. Do you remember the king that tried to act like a priest? Everybody says that. I think Saul used priests to offer the sacrifice. I don't think he's trying to do it himself. You can disagree with that, but that's not who I'm thinking about. Uh, yes, Isaiah. Remember what Isaiah went into the temple to try to do? For an incense, Second Chronicles 26, the priest tried to stop him. He was the king. He had no business in the temple trying to act like a priest. And while he was in there, what happened? Leprosy broke out on his head and spread to his whole body. He was quarantined for the rest of his life. God didn't want the king to try to take over the priestly function as well. So this is very significant that the kingship and the priesthood were going to be joined together, symbolized by putting a crown on the head of the high priest, Joshua. And you remember what that name is in the New Testament. Now, the fact is, there actually was a king slash priest in the Old Testament, right? Who was that? Melchizedek. How could he be both a king and priest? He wasn't an Israelite. <clears throat> yeah, it was pre-law of Moses. He wasn't even an Israelite. Uh, and yet, his story is told in three verses in Genesis 14, but it's picked up on in the prophecy in Psalm 110, where the king would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which is then used in Hebrews to talk about the superiority of Jesus as a priest according to Melchizedek and not a priest according to the lineage of Levi and Aaron. So this is a big deal. The kingship and the priesthood would be merging in the man of which Joshua is a symbol. And, and when you crown him, that's what you're seeing. You're seeing the prophecy of Jesus merging those two functions. Look at Jeremiah 30 for a minute. You've got all kinds of allusions and foreshadowings of this in the Bible. Jeremiah 30, verse 21, Their leader shall be one of them. Their ruler shall come forth from their midst. And I will bring him near, and he shall approach me. For who would dare to risk his life to approach me, declares the Lord. Here's the ruler who approaches God. Who approaches God in the Old Testament? The priest. You've got the ruler approaching God. He says, who would dare to do that? And yet that's what he's looking forward to. Jeremiah 30, 21, a little less explicitly, 
is saying the same thing. There'll be a merging. The leader will come to God before God. He will be both king and priest. Uh, just to compliment this a moment, there were a couple of Old Testament figures that were close to being king, priests. They weren't exactly, but they didn't miss it very far, and they are foreshadowings of Jesus. Can you think of any characters in the Old Testament that were more or less king, priests? Samuel. He was the judge. That's the closest they had to a king. And priest and prophet. There was another one in the Old Testament. Moses, who was leader and a priest to the priests, he was the one that performed the priestly function to install the Aaron line as priests, and he was the prophet, Deuteronomy 18. And so Jesus is kind of a parallel, you know, the, the, the you know, reality of which Moses and Samuel foreshadowed. He's just studying these things, they're really cool. Uh, a lot of things to think about. Um, and, and so Jesus is the one who would build his temple and he would rule on his throne and be a priest. And it's interesting that it's the exiles that bring the, the money for the crown. And notice in verse 15, those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. So the, the Gentiles would come to Jesus here in this passage as well. A lot of things to think about. Really cool stuff. Thoughts and comments. Lots of things to meditate on and just reflect on, I think, in all of this. So, yes, uh, uh, going again back to you know, Melchizedek was the king of Salem, the king of the, of the city of peace. Yes. And here again, as mentioned, I, I, this is what it always strikes me this way. Maybe it doesn't anybody else, but here. Jesus mentioned king and priest, the council of peace shall be between them both. I, mean, I thought about that, but good point. Yeah, real good point. Yeah. Uh, wow, I mean, you know, the more you just look at these things, the more things just start jumping out of you. You realize, and people say mere men wrote the Bible? You know, it's kind of one of those things for me. You know, evidence is a big deal, and I, I've always tried to be an honest person. You know, I don't just believe the Bible and God and all that just because I decided I was going to it just because my parents told me to. You know, you evaluate the evidence. And, you know, when you first, when, when you're an unbeliever, when you're first looking at it, there's certain things that really stand out to you. You know, I think miracles, the resurrection, maybe fulfilled prophecy in some ways. But, you know, the more you get into it, there are more subtle things that are even stronger. Some of just the impressiveness of the scripture, how, how it fits together in such a deep way. Hey, there's no way mere men wrote this. I mean, there are some men who do write some pretty complex things, but not like this. And then some that, you know, I don't really like to convince an unbeliever on this basis. You know, they're never going to study it long enough to see all that. But, but the older I get, the more I see. The more it just confirms my faith, and it makes me realize, wow, there's just there's some things about this that are just inexplicable if this was a mere human document. Other thoughts? Yes. Okay. Uh, I was just thinking it's sort of interesting the end of verse 15. Uh, 
after dismissing it, it prompts me and says, this will come to pass. If you diligently obey the Lord your God, it's just for a they're not going to get to participate unless they're really obedient and faithful. Exactly. All right.